Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is John Sherrill, if you happen to be a guest with us, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fifth Church. And if you are a guest to our online service today, we welcome you. We're glad that you found us and are happy to be worshiping with you. Uh, before we dive in, let me pray for us, please. God, thank you for the scripture that we just heard. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. Uh, thank you that you are full of both grace and truth. You give us grace, and Lord, you speak truth to us for our own good, and we bless you for that. Uh, God, allow us to hear your truth today by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series uh, called Dear Church, based on the seven letters Jesus dictated to the Apostle John uh, to be sent to the churches of Asia Minor, recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. And these letters, as we've been saying throughout the series, are both unique and powerful because they record Jesus speaking directly to a local congregation, to seven of them, in fact. And as we've also seen, they really weren't intended only for those specific congregations, but for really churches across time. So they're applicable to us as well. And there's a pattern in all of these letters. Each of them is addressed to the angel of the church in such and such a place. And as we've said, that likely means that the letter was addressed to the pastor of that church. And in each letter, Jesus says, I know. The Lord knows what we're going through, our, our circumstances, what we're up to, what we're experiencing. And then based on that knowledge of what's really going on in our lives and in the life of the church, uh, Jesus brings either uh, encouragement or correction or a little bit of both. And that's the pattern throughout these letters. So at the end, when we put all seven together, we should have seven marks of a, a vibrant church that are important to Jesus. And we know this very clearly because he tells us that they are important to him. And today we heard Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. Here are some pictures of the ruins of that church in Sardis. Uh, and, and by the way, thanks to Kathy McConnell for all of the pictures that you've seen uh, throughout this series. Kathy and Randy went on a, a trip led by Words of Hope and uh, were accompanied by Don and Carol DeGood and uh, Jim and Muriel Wondergem, along with some others, uh, to all of these seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, we're thankful to the McConnells for sharing their pictures with us. Uh, back when I became a Christian, I was invited to, uh, into a two-year in-depth Bible study called the Bethel Bible Series. It comes out of the Lutheran Church. And one of the uh, distinctives of that study is that there's a poster, kind of a picture, for the theme of every week over two years. And I so remember the, the posters associated with the prophets because they would always have either a white flag or a black flag or both. And if it had a white flag, it would mean that that prophet brought a message of hope. If a black flag would mean that prophet brought a message of judgment. And if it was both, it, it would mean that the prophet had a little bit of both in the message that they had for God's people. Using that imagery, this letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis would be a black flag letter. Uh, this is one of the most severe of all seven letters. And really the only encouraging thing that Jesus has to say to this church is, well, at least a few people in Sardis haven't soiled their clothes, meaning haven't been unfaithful to me. But, but beyond that, Jesus is just telling them truth for their own good. So we'll dive into that. But before that, uh, a little background. 
you fifth regulars know that I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. I'm a, I'm a Buckeye at heart. I love Ohio. I love Dayton. Uh, Dayton claims the Wright brothers and, and rightly is named the birthplace of aviation. Uh, it was the home to NCR, National Cash Register, a company that pioneered early business machines. Uh, we, we claim as a son of the city, Charles Kettering, uh, a great inventor in our country's history. He invented a whole, whole bunch of stuff, but every time you turn the key or press the button on your car to get the engine running, uh, you're, you should thank Charles Kettering. He invented the electric starter for the internal combustion engine. Dayton has a wonderful history in that sense, very accomplished city. It was also a great place to grow up. I remember my mom taking me downtown at Christmas time and, and big kind of anchor department stores with windows decorated. And there was a big city square filled with vendors and a hot chocolate stand and kind of a big bonfire for the whole city right in that downtown area. It's a vibrant downtown area, full of life, full of people. Uh, but like many other manufacturing cities uh, in the Rust Belt, Dayton got crushed by the changes in the auto industry and the, and the movement of manufacturing uh, to overseas locations. I'll, I'll never forget a visit I made to my parents. Around the year 2000, I was pastoring a church in Des Moines, Iowa, and I drove back to Dayton to see my parents. And I hadn't been downtown for years, so one evening I took a drive uh, through the downtown area just on my own to see what was up, and I was stunned. Empty buildings everywhere for lease, uh, dilapidated, run-down storefronts everywhere, weeds growing in the main sidewalks on the main streets downtown. Nobody around. I hardly saw anybody. I hardly saw any cars. I, I rolled up to a stoplight that night and finally saw my first group of people, about 20 young men. It was in the summertime. Some of them had their shirts off. And I I stopped at the light and glanced over, and the instant I did, I locked eyes with one young man. And right when we locked eyes, he took a step off the curb, kept his eyes right on me, and was walking very quickly straight at my car. And I could tell from the look in his eyes and the expression on his face that he did not have a question, and he wasn't coming to talk. So gladly, since there was no one around, I just hit the gas, ran the red light, and got out of there. And as I was driving back to my parents' place that night, I, I remember thinking, what happened to this city? This is Dayton, Ohio. We figured out the airplane. You know, we invent things and then build those things that people need and that are very useful. This is a practical, pragmatic city that contributes to society. What happened? That was Sardis. You know, during the time of Jesus, Sardis, like Dayton, was a shadow of its former self. One commentator wrote this, Its ancient history was more distinguished than its modern history. And evidently the same was true for the church in Sardis, that same commentator. Like the city itself, the church had belied its early promise. Its religious history, like its civil, belonged to the past. This was a church that was living in the past and dying in the present. Jesus names the problem right out of the gate. There's no encouragement, no beating around the bush, no tiptoeing around the issue. Jesus tells them the truth for their own good. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
John Stott wrote this about Sardis. The church of Sardis had acquired a name. Its reputation as a progressive church had evidently spread far and wide. It was well regarded in the city and in the neighborhood. It was known by the other six churches in the province for its vitality. No false doctrine was taking root in its fellowship. We hear of neither Balaam nor the Nicolaitans nor Jezebel. What a live church you have in Sardis, visitors would exclaim with admiration when they attended its services or watched its activities. I dare say its congregation was quite large for those days and was growing and even fashionable. Its program included many excellent projects. It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor. But outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. It's an issue to which the Bible speaks often. The difference between outward appearance and inward reality. And think of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Or, or consider what the prophet Isaiah writes. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, outward religion matters for nothing. I mean, what matters is what's going on in our heart, the inward reality. In fact, religion by itself without an actual relationship with God is both deceiving and dangerous. It looks pious and respectable, but beneath the veneer are secret sins and spiritual death. And Jesus named it outright to the Pharisees. Listen to this from Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Ouch! <laughs> the problem is hypocrisy, right? And it's not just their problem. It's our problem. Very interestingly, the, the word hypocrisy is a Greek word that emerged out of the Greek theater culture. To be a hypocrite, a, a hypocrite, 
was to be an actor or an actress, to take on a role that did not match your real self. So spiritually, hypocrisy is just that, to act like a person you're not, to, to desire more the approval of other people than the approval of God. If you're more familiar with the Bible, you might uh, remember that verse that gives us the antidote to fear. Do you remember that? It's, it's easy uh, from a human perspective to think that the antidote to fear might be more courage. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, uh, for perfect love casts out all fear. The antidote to fear is love, not more courage. And, and really something similar to that is in play with regard to hypocrisy or this, this desire to make our outward appearance uh, shiny and respectable while neglecting what's really going on in the heart. One might think that the antidote to hypocrisy would be more authenticity. How, how can I do that? But that that's pretty theoretical. In, in a way, that's, that's true. But what I've found is that the true antidote to hypocrisy is vulnerability. It's the decision of the will to open up about our shortcomings and weaknesses and challenges and failures. And to not hold those things tight and hide them, but to, to begin to set them out there for those closest to us. And then, then a little wider for some other people to see. And then finally, just to approach the world with open hands and say, this is who I am and this is that with which I struggle. When we hide these things, we model hypocrisy for our children, our church, and our world. And we don't want to do that. Jesus is hard on the church in Sardis, but he's being firm. He's being truthful for their own good. And gladly he does the same for us. Jesus gave them and he gives us the roadmap out of hypocrisy. Look at the rest of the text. You know, what should we do if we find ourselves in this place, the place of having a reputation of being alive when in fact we're really struggling spiritually on the inside, dying in fact? What should we do? Jesus gives us five commands. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you were taught, hold it fast, and repent, change your thinking. So first, wake up. You know, don't slumber one moment longer in the stupor of self-righteousness. Don't do that. Abandon that little voice that's telling you it's, it's really no big deal or that, that sometime down the road you'll be able to grapple with those inward realities. You can do that later. Abandon that. Look at this from Ephesians. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And stay awake because we need to stay awake to keep watch, Jesus says. Be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. You know, this, this appeal to the church in Sardis to wake up and, and, and stay awake really hit home with them because of a piece of their history, a distinctive piece of the history of Sardis is that this almost impregnable city, it had a great defensive wall, was conquered twice throughout the course of history because the watchman on the wall fell asleep and a single soldier from the invading army scaled the wall, snuck in and opened the gate for the invading army 
leading to the city falling. It happened not just once, but twice. So the message for those in Sardis was clear. Wake up or be conquered. Second, strengthen what remains. There's a remnant. They knew what was right. You and I know what's right. Invest there. Exercise those muscles. Focus on spiritual growth by seeking the Lord. Give up on your personal plan of seeking approval from others and focus on pleasing the Lord. Third, remember what you received, meaning remember the gospel that was handed down to us by the apostles, the the eyewitnesses of Jesus. There is a core body of belief. There is a faith that nobody made up, but, but which we received from those people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Remember that. Focus on that. Study that. Discuss that with your friends and and with your family. And fourth, hold that teaching fast. Keep it close. Beware the subtle spiritual erosion that wants to, you know, put a Grand Canyon kind of groove in in our spiritual life. Fight for it. Hold that teaching fast. And fifth, repent. Change your thinking. If anywhere your worldview has been shaped by a little bit of Jesus and some of your own thoughts, bail on that. That is worth nothing. Jesus tells us the truth about our lives and about this world. Let's listen to him and follow him. He knows. And we we all struggle with hypocrisy. As I talk about this, please don't think that this is a preacher pointing the finger at you. I mean, this finger is right here. Right? We all struggle with this. The, the question for all of us is really, how are you really in your heart with the Lord? How are you doing with God? And, and I want to be clear that the answer is never to try harder. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this thing and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buckle down and, and, and try harder and I'm going to do better. There's a, there's a place for that. Uh, but I, I found that most of the time, spiritually speaking, that is a fruitless endeavor. If you really want to gain ground spiritually, you need to focus on Jesus and get closer to Jesus. Listen to the Lord. The Lord actually directs us and guides us. Seek the Lord more actively. Commit to follow and obey. Uh, open yourself to the accountability of others. Share with spiritual mentors your, your struggles and weaknesses and, and, all, and all of that. It's really only when we do this that we as Christians and as a church can begin to practice uh, what, what the scripture says. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The real question is, how are you in your heart really with Jesus? And if anything is pulling you away from Jesus, get rid of it. Get rid of it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. God, may it be so to us, Lord, that by your Spirit we might identify anything that's pulling us away from you. Give us the courage to begin to practice confessing our sins for one another.
that we might pray for each other and actually be healed. Father, give us courage to lay down our concern, really our undue concern, about our outward reputation and to focus instead on your approval and that which pleases you. Sear on our hearts and minds the reality that we are eternal beings of incredible worth in your eyes. God, help us embrace that truth about us and lean into your kingdom reality here and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.